Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Go to occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. Yuranta is the sentimental shrine of all Nebadon, the chief of ten million inhabited worlds, the mortal home of Christ Michael, sovereign of all Nebadon, a Melchizedek minister of the realms, a system savior, an Adamic redeemer, a seraphic fellow, an associate of ascending spirits, a Maranta progressor, a son of man in the likeness of mortal flesh, and the planetary prince of Yuranta. You know who he is? You know who Yuranta is? Uh, I'm pretty sure I read a comic book about him once. Did I clarify that for you? Huh? It's a comic book about your rancher? No, I'm just, I'm being an asshole. Oh. <laughs> it sounds like a comic book story. Is, that like a, is it supposed said. to be an actual person? It's your rancher. Well, it from Nebadon. It's not like you haven't met him. Like you. Oh, I thought, I thought like it was George supposed to be Bush like or something. an alter ego of an existing person. No, no. It's your Okay. The Urantia book is nothing if not an occult revelation. It was received through an anonymous sleeping channel starting around 1911 and edited by a committee called the Forum, that's just Forum with a capital F, into a book more than 2,000 pages long. That again is 2,000 pages. The book outline, yeah, that's I was about to say, I don't think I've ever read a book no. that long before. It's, uh, it's a lot of, it's multiple. How many pages does It have? Stephen King's It. I, I mean, no that's idea. a thick book. <laughs> yeah, that's close, probably. That's his Urantia book. <laughs> the book outlines a detailed supernatural bureaucracy of planetary and universal angels and gods governing a vast multiverse called Orvantan. That's the multiverse. Uh, this is under the command of a trinity of personal gods existing in the central universe of Havona. Orvantan is comprised of seven universes orbiting Havona. Listen to me. Havona. Haven. Uh. Uh. Like in Cuba. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's heaven. It sounds like heaven. Oh, I thought you Havana. Our, <laughs> our, our fate is in Seoul. This is the weirdest opening we've done in some time. Our fate... As ensouled entities living on the planet Urantia in the universe Nebadon is to realize our immortality and ascend through planets and universes ending eventually in the Trinity's, capital Trinity's, home in Paradise, capital Paradise. So, kind of like Buddhism? It's got to, yeah, yeah. We got to learn our way up. While this is most certainly a gloss on Hindu reincarnation, ah. but Buddhism is uh, an editing of Hinduism, so yes. Uh, it owes a great debt to Helena Blavatsky's superior, in my opinion, secret doctrine. Uh, of course, that's my opinion. It's central to, th this idea is central to Urantia doctrine, uh, that our ascension does not involve a return to Earth, but a journey through universes and dimensions beyond our own. So ultimately, you're not going to come back like you would in a Hindu or Buddhist mm. scenario. At its heart, the book is a reinterpretation of Christianity with creator gods incarnating on various planets throughout the universes they construct. According to Urantia doctrine, Jesus of Nazareth was the seventh bestowal or incarnation of our creator, Christ Michael. He offered humanity the fourth or five of five revelations, with the Urantia book being the final epical revelation. Students of this podcast will find a lot in Urantia that sounds like previous movements we've discussed on our show. 
There is fundamentally nothing shocking about its revelations, but that having been said, it is a remarkable document with some fairly novel ideas, particularly in the way it combined advanced thoughts about the shape and nature of the universe with the Christian Bible. Today on Occult Confessions, Chicago's most mysterious revelation, the Urantia Book. Those voices you were hearing alongside of me are none other than Johnny Cook, our patron progenitor. Oh, hi. Oh, oh, oh. 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 Didn't see you there. (laughs) (laughs) Hey there. (laughs) And Savannah Barrett, sister of the 84th degree, who I've been promising this episode to for two months now. Yeah, and I still have no idea what any of it means. But you're excited, right? I am. All he said was aliens, and I was like, I'm in. (laughs) Yeah, it'll involve that too, but it is so much more. This is a complex story that goes in many directions. Okay. Beginning with a cereal company, just so you know. (gasps) Kellogg's? None other. They're down for everything. They're the reason. (laughs) They're the reason what? They're the reason, like, didn't they? Well, no, they invented cereal to stop people from masturbating or something like that. It's a complicated, yes. The idea was that if you ate a blander diet, it would quell your appetites. So... It wasn't like mm-hmm. to keep your hands busy as so much as that to feed you without stimulating you. I just feel Isn't like... Isn't that like the opposite? You're saying that eating cereal makes you want to no, have like sex? Eating, <laughs> eating bland makes you want to... Experience more Experience things. more to make up for it, Oh, right? you get bored, so you'd rather masturbate. Something. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pledge it out before we get further along also in these speculations. Frosted Flakes are pretty yummy. I don't think they're well, Frosted Flakes is another thing. We'll get there. Brand oh. <laughs> Let's pledge it out. We, the members, members of, of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Now you can hear that we're all lined up there, which means we are in the same room. Yes, we're back. Our break is over and we're back on stage. Back in the Cadby Theater at Scenic Chesapeake College. Or in scenic Y Mills. It's scenic is what I'm trying to say. There's corn around for miles and bays. Corn, corn, farm fields. Herons, geese. Let's open up the order of confessors. Do you all know how we do that these days? No. We make a sound. Yeah, yeah. Uh. (laughs) John's bringing his A game today. Uh, We want to welcome Mark F., Chris R., Dana S., uh, perhaps the MILF occultist? I, I'm not Wait, sure. what was that? The MILF occultist? The MILF occultist, yeah. Yeah, somebody, sorry, somebody wanted me to say MILF occultist, one of our patrons, and I believe it is Dana. That's excellent. Uh, K, uh, K. David, Michelle F., Garrett D., Filthy L., McBango, Ivea H., Ivoya H., oh, my, my friend, Ivoya. You're going to have to let me know how I did on that. And Erica D. And a pledge bump from Julie K. Talk a little bit about reviews now. Uh, We had a lovely message from Patty W. on Patreon. Just want to give a shout out to Patty. I passed your words on. It was the holiday time uh, to all of the confessors. And they remember that? I sent that on the the channel. Yeah. Yeah, the chat. Uh, So everyone appreciated your your kind words. Uh, Laura C. left us a review on Patreon. Well-researched, well-paced cleverly written and improvised 
beautifully spoken and funny as hell. Thanks there. And we heard from Glenn M. through uh, our website, who is a Seventh-day Adventist, which is fun, Glenn, because, boy, we're going to have a good time today. I hope you still (laughs) like us after I finish today's episode. Uh, which is not about the Seventh-day Adventists, but uh, yeah, the Urantia book begins there. All right, let's close it up. John? Thank you for joining. Thank, oh, thank you, Sabina. Oh. <laughs> it was distinct. Okay. Let's talk about cereal. The two people most responsible for the Urantia book, according to Urantia researcher Martin Gardner, were Wilfred Custer Kellogg, Gardner's choice for the anonymous channeler, and Dr. William Sadler, who led the forum responsible for editing Kellogg's sleeping reports. So Wilfred Custer Kellogg, who, by the way, does not invent the serial, but is related to the Kellogg family, of course, he goes into a trance off in a room. So is he like a medium? Like he's a medium? Kind of like a medium, yeah. But he's so he's separated from the people and he channels these words. Have you ever seen like Jay Z Knight or anybody? Have you have you I've shown you guys videos of Jay Z Knight? No. She's an '80s channel. There's a lot of channeling in the '80s, but people would just claim to. It's a little bit like it a trance like oracle. Yeah. Like the uh, at Delphi. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's got that quality to it. But you talk for a long time. The channel Andrew Jackson Davis. Uh, I've talked about on the show. He channeled whole books and uh, mm. this way. Um, not the way Mormon functioned. I was going to bring up the Book of Mormon, but no, he he was reading tablets. But this is not reading tablets or anything. He's This is coming to him directly from some divine source into his head. He communicates it. And then this guy, Dr. Sadler, takes the pages that come to Kellogg and he brings them to this group called the Forum to edit and try to make sense of. Mm. So the, it's not like the they're, unlike A.J. Davis, you know, back in the day, they're not being directly handed out to the masses they're being worked through and that's the point well we'll get to how that all works so both men had a direct tie uh, to one of the most colorful figures in turn of the century america and that is savannah cornflake company founder dr john harvey kellogg everyone in the kellogg family has three names to understand how both men came to know each other and how sadler rose to prominence we need to take a minute for kellogg uh, since i'm guessing Uh, Most of y'all today don't know many of the details about Kellogg's fame, although Savannah's apparently interested in the Kellogg's. I've just heard, it feels like every time I hear about some crazy conspiracy, Kellogg is (laughs) I swear to God. Well, this is for real. I mean, yeah, this is not, this is... No, not that he's behind it, but that they, like, believe it and that they started the (laughs) conspiracy The Kellogg cornflake people that made this happen. Um, They're behind everything. They're probably behind (laughs) the fake birds as well. No. So let's get to to it. So John Harvey Kellogg uh, was one of the most prominent prominent Seventh-day Adventists in the late 19th century. He ran the Adventists Western Health Reform Institute, and that was located in Battle Creek, Michigan. And he became the director of that institute when he was only 24 years old. He renamed the institute the Battle Creek Sanitarium, which is a play on the word sanatorium. Sanatoriums were state-run facilities, whereas sanitariums came to be associated with luxurious private health resorts. So that one change in letter. If you ever see someone talking about a 19th century sanitarium or you come across abandoned sanitarium, that means rich people were voluntarily hanging out there. 
like for mental spa. and physical health. Yeah, it's like a, fa- a spa, yeah. But like you, uh, theoretically, you have some sort of serious problem or whatever that you're trying to deal with. But That's... you could just like be sad. Hysteria. Kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. But I had no idea that that was like asylum. I would have just assumed they were the same thing because Different, they were yeah. just sound so similar. Different thing. Uh, Battle Creek, better known as the San, was one of the most S A N. The San. That's that was what they called it. Like you know, the cool kids called it the San. Where are you going this weekend? The San. If you know, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm feeling a, feeling a little headache coming on. I think I might spend some time at the San. What's the actual name of this place? It's the Battle Creek Sanitarium. Oh, okay. Now I that makes a little more <laughs> sense. I was like, where Why is they calling this it the coming sand? from? Uh, short, short for sanitarium, because yeah. that's a lot. It's a mouthful. It was one of the most popular uh, of these resorts in its heyday, the San. At, at uh, five foot four inches tall, uh, colleagues come came to call Doctor Kellogg the Little Doctor, uh, running the San. <laughs> I don't think he probably liked that. They probably didn't call that to him to his face. He was an eccentric guy. So let's talk about his eccentricities. <laughs> Maybe he was all right with it. He harbored a series of eccentric beliefs, many of which were widely accepted at the time, in part because of the way he promoted them. He promoted something called hydrotherapy, which was the use of water to cure pretty much anything. He encouraged drinking a glass of water once every hour, one day a week, to maintain health. Whoa. So one day a week, you're drinking a whole glass of water every hour on the hour. Um, Isn't there such, there's such thing as drinking too much water that can kill you. Do you think I, you'd that be all right. amount? Yeah, that, that won't kill you. But yes, it, you, yeah, I guess you can waterlog yourself in theory. Sometimes when I'm sick, I try to do this. I drink a lot of water to see if I can, I don't think it works or does anything. <laughs> but I believe it does. Treatments for, I, rem- I was in college. I remember and this kid uh, was sick and he came to philosophy class with this big, gallon of water and he was like yeah i'm gonna flush it out (laughs) (laughs) it's like okay man and i always think of that when i'm sick and i try to drink a little more than i usually do (laughs) rob if you're out there uh treatments for specific complaints not me rob this kid's name was rob treatments for specific he was a theater kid treatments for specific complaints uh, according to the doctor could include baths at specific temperatures and on specific body parts or spraying water at the feet as well as hundreds of other aquatic applications you can imagine some of them now if you'd like all of your orifices etc he combined water and electricity believing <laughs> equally in <No>. the <laughs> oh, easy there he just wants to sh- shock therapy with water but with water water makes it better um it probably makes it worse he may have invented the electric blanket to that end oh oh he is, yeah, so that's but cool. With water. But with water, yes. But he would electric douse your water, water yes, and then lay the electric blanket on you and expose a wire or two before he walked away. Uh, he, he had patients sit naked in an electric light bath cabinet, which is exactly what it sounds like. So you would pay him to take your pants off and sit in a box while he turned a light on. While he shocked you. No, 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 like, no, no. There's no okay, shocking okay. involved. It's just electric lights. He just thinks being around electric, electric, because electricity is fairly new. It's the end of the, the okay. 19th century. So, and lighting, you know, electric light is fairly new. So he figures, oh, this is going to be great. This will just cool, cure everything. <laughs> it's so good for us. You just sit naked here in this light. Uh, sort of like, you know, when I'm trying to start seeds or something. Um, 
Adventists uh, did not believe in the use of medicines, uh, which is in large part why Kellogg was so obsessed with alternative therapies. He was a vegetarian, which is a better supported path to health than hydrotherapy, but he was a peculiar kind of vegetarian. He was an advocate of germ theory, uh, which was the at the cutting edge of medicine at the time, and he opposed eating meat because he said the carcasses contained bacteria. He argued against oysters, the ocean's filters, uh, for that reason, that they filter the ocean water, so why would you put it in your body, he said. And he argued against pickles. What? <laughs> <laughs> for containing bacteria, I guess because they sit in the brine. Maybe they accumulate oh, germs, is, was his idea. so good. Yeah, sorry, Dr. Kellogg. We're going to keep eating pickles. <laughs> he said ice cream was uniquely bad for your health, <laughs> but was generally against dessert overall. So singling out ice cream, he, he just hated all desserts. He sounds like a really fun guy. <laughs> <laughs> when, when Kellogg indulged, he had a crushed banana with lemon juice <laughs> for a snack. <laughs> Which is what I give my kids all the time. They're like, Daddy, I need a snack. And I'm like, okay, let me just go crush a banana for you. Oh, wait. Let me squeeze a little lemon juice on there. I know that you'll like it when I've prepared it fully for you. He opposed vaccines, specifically the highly effective and life-saving smallpox vaccine. So there's maybe a bit of legitimate conspiracy. And promoted the removal of parts of the colon to cure auto-intoxication what? Uh, this was both extremely harmful uh, and ridiculous. What is auto-intoxication? Um, if I had to put the words together, it would be like a self-poisoning. Like uh, he would remove parts of your colon because of your diet. You you didn't oh. weren't eating properly or something. And mm-hmm. certainly your diet can cause colon cancer. That's true. Smoked meats and things if you eat too much of that kind of stuff. Uh, oddly enough, pickles, brined foods, you can't eat too many of those for your colon, uh, but he would oh. just remove parts of your colon. <laughs> like preemptively? Pre- I guess, yeah. It's... <laughs> can't get cancer if it's not there. <laughs> so awful. What the fuck? So awful. He wrote a series of books, the most famous of which was Plain Facts for Old and Young. Scintillating, doesn't it? Sound like, <laughs> it sounds like, like a scintillating an read. Did it, was it P... L-A-N-E, and it had, like, a picture of a plane no, on no. it. No, <laughs> no, unfortunately, no. No pun. This is plain facts, like plain cornflakes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> What's What should we read tonight, mother? How about some plain facts <laughs> to go to bed on? Do you have them for the old and the young father? Uh, so he, he, um, he finished this during his first year at Battle Creek, so he was 24 when he wrote his plain facts. Uh... In it, he argued that humanity's greatest evils were illicit sex and the, quote, solitary vice. Any guesses on what the solitary vice is if I say it after illicit sex? Present. What? You're you're the solitary vice? No, no, no. no. I'm, I'm just not voting. Oh. <laughs> it is masturbation, John. You're right. Um, a person inclined to masturbate, he said, was worse than a dog. You wouldn't masturbate in front of your mother or father or sister or brother, he said. So why would you be masturbating in front of God, who is always watching you? I also why probably wouldn't wa- be having unillicit sex in front of my parents either. <laughs> yeah. That's true. You would licit sex. You would not have your licit sex yes. with your married partner in front of your parents. Or I assume defecate in front of your parents. But God's watching you then, too, on the toilet. 
Why Why is he always watching me? He needs God? to mind his business. You're talking about God or Dr. <laughs> Kellogg? God. Well, <laughs> so, also Dr. Kellogg, but... It's Dr. Kellogg's God. Kellogg prescribed bandaging uh, or caging the genitals. <laughs> that or... sounds... <laughs> Hard to sleep on your stomach. Um, or tying the offender's hands to a bedpost to prevent the sin. That also it sounds It almost sounds kink. like people might like that. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, sleep on your side, ideally on a hard surface with thin covers. And if you mm. still won't behave yourself, the doctor can apply electricity to your penis and or vagina. Kellogg was by no means beyond the pale with these ideas, although history has not been kind to this line of thinking, and I'm not especially kind to it either myself. Neither apparently are Savannah or John. <laughs> Less than 50 years later, psychology led by luminaries like Freud and Reich would push the species in the exact opposite direction, calling these practices sexual repression. And listen to our episode on Dr. Reich, of course, if you want more on that. Let's talk about cornflakes, shall we? Sure. Flake cereal, ultimately called corn flakes, were invented when a batch of wheat berry dough was left out one night at the sanitarium, and John Harvey Kellogg ordered it rolled out and baked. He said, look at that crap you guys left there. Bake it. His... <laughs> what a genius. <laughs> he was ahead of his time. <laughs> uh, his brother and bookkeeper, William Keith Kellogg, suggested that John serve the flakes to their guests. Soon, patients began requesting the cereal after they'd left the sand, and the Kellogg's began packaging and shipping it. Now, here's this, your this answer. Was, this was just dry, right? This is just what? dry flakes? Well, I guess you could probably put something on it, milk or orange but do, juice. Do you yeah, think they did? Um, at, the, at the sanitarium? He's not opposed to... Well, he's a veg. He's not vegan, so I guess it's conceivable they could have put milk on them. Okay. But I don't know if that would have been, like, their first thought. Just, just bake them and eat them. You could, yeah. Like, by the handful. Yeah. Know, like, crackers. I used like to eat fruit, loop, fruit Loops without milk. I like to eat them dry. Those are not nearly not bland enough, flakes. though. Yeah, that's not, well, see, now Frosted Flakes, here's the thing. William Keith wanted to market the cereal more widely, but John Harvey wanted to limit its distribution to his clients. So William Keith broke away and formed the Battle Creek Toasted Corn Flake Company, later Kellogg Toasted Corn Flake Company. So it's William Keith who actually is the founder of Kellogg's, although John Harvey oh. Kellogg invented them. William Keith added sugar, which John Harvey, with his crushed banana and lemon, adamantly opposed. Whoa, scandalous. Nah, right. That's a, that's, a fa- that's a weird Thanksgiving. <laughs> How's those cornflakes going? Uh, so, about that. Added sugar. And put a cute tiger on the box. <laughs> and, and then John Harvey, like, lunges over the table and grabs him by the throat. You a didn't tiger, you <laughs> you bastard <laughs> you raging infidel the rest of course was cereal cornflakes have an indirect relationship to kellogg's theories of masturbation in that kellogg like many anti-masturbation crusaders believed diet could encourage or discourage adolescents from touching themselves candy spices tea and coffee all led to self-abuse graham crackers famously were originally made without sugar and they were created to combat the urge to masturbate. But cornflakes weren't so directly connected, uh, although they were part of a complete non-arousing diet. (laughs) So, William Sadler, uh, back to Dr. Sadler, who is not Dr. Kellogg, separate guy, began his relationship with Kellogg by working as a bellboy in the kitchen of the sand. 
And Kellogg uh, promoted him uh, step-by-step to work in sales, uh, marketing a line of health foods that Kellogg was developing at his institute. And then Sadler married Kellogg's niece uh, and converted to Seventh-day Adventism. He completed a degree in medicine and rose to become a well-regarded surgeon before switching his focus to psychiatry. He became a popular lecturer on the Chautauqua circuit and, uh, like Kellogg, published a whole bunch of books. Although initially an advocate for hydrotherapy, Sadler's medical opinions were generally more sound than Dr. Kellogg's. Uh, Sadler said that the only harm caused by masturbation was too much worrying over whether it was bad for you to masturbate. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. Yeah, shots fired. That's another weird Thanksgiving. Damn you! I gave you everything. (laughs) (laughs) I gave you cereal, brother, and I gave you a job. You raging sinners. Wilfred Custer Kellogg was Dr. Sadler's brother-in-law and bookkeeper for his uncle, William Keith Kellogg's Cornflake Company. So, we've met Dr. Sadler. He's related to Kellogg. He married into the family after getting a job at the, at the sanitarium. Now we're over to Wilfred Custer. So Dr. Sadler, remember from the very beginning, is going to be important because he's going to be the one who's sort of running the show around the Arantia book. But the actual channeler is this guy, Wilfred Custer. Dr. Sadler's brother-in-law, because remember, Sadler married into the Kellogg family, and again, a bookkeeper for his uncle, the Kellogg Cornflake Company. Kellogg's Cornflake Company, uh, he resigned from in 1910, moving to Chicago with Sadler in 1912. Uh, Wilfred Custer was apparently shy and plagued by chronic stomach ulcers, despite all the cornflakes he ate. I guess it was the sugar. (laughs) He'd attained only a sixth grade education, uh, much like William Keith, by the way, the uh, founder of the Kellogg's Cornflake Company, in large part because the Kellogg's were Seventh-day Adventists and so kept their children out of school as a matter of religion. Sort of like we have Catholic schools and stuff. Mm. You You would homeschool your children. It's worth taking a minute to describe what the Seventh-day Adventists are all about. Again, apologies to our Seventh-day Adventist listeners before I do this. I'll try to be as kind as possible. We love you. Um, I want to do this because they form a significant part of the background for the Urantia book, as you can tell. Everybody involved so far is a Seventh-day Adventist. The Adventists had begun as the Millerites, a group that we've talked about before on the show. Based on his own calculations and reading of the book of Daniel, William Miller predicted that the second coming of Jesus would be not later than spring 1844. Now, that didn't happen, did it? Uh, So when the apocalypse didn't arrive, Miller pushed it back to October, which is really tense, I think, because still pretty soon. (laughs) Didn't come again, and some of the Millerites decided that while Jesus hadn't returned to Earth, Miller's prediction actually reflected an event uh, that had happened in heaven. Uh, This is actually part of an interesting argument in religious scholarship about when prophecy fails. Uh, And the argument basically is that if you are a true believer, when prophecy fails, you rationalize it and find other ways Mm -hmm. to maintain your belief. Christ, he said, had entered the heavenly sanctuary, which may have entailed a shutting of the door against further salvation. This is what Miller said. Oh, so meaning like we're all not getting into heaven or? Let's get to that. Yeah. Um, So the Adventists followed up on this theory. They believe that 
when we die, we enter a sleep, uh, a soul sleep, that is until the resurrection. So bear in mind, Christian doctrine holds that at the end of Judeo-Christian doctrine, that at the end of time, um, Christ, God, will raise the dead, which is all of us, we will be dead. So all of humanity, except, you know, like the eight people who are still alive, will be risen from the dead to be judged. So according to the Adventists, during the interregnum between our death and that resurrection, we are sleeping. We are in soul sleep. Is it a restful sleep? I'll let you know. (sighs) We are living with conditional immortality on this earth, such that the righteous will be revived while the wicked will be permanently destroyed, relieving Adventists of the moral burden of everlasting torment. So, yes, probably your sleep is okay if you still exist, because if you were bad, you just cease to be. That sounds kind of nice, too, though. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like the most restful sleep. It is certainly better than hell. Yes, I will agree with that. Blavatsky, I always say this whenever I bring up this theory, but Blavatsky had made a similar comment that it's conceivable that our souls need to be created, that we, we grow our souls over time through spiritual activity. I think Gurdjieff said something like this, too. Through creative activity, we grow our souls. Um, so the Adventists are sort of saying this in the other direction. If you do not do well, if you if you act wickedly, your soul goes away. Mm. Do they not believe in hell? There's no hell, no, because you cease to be. Yeah. Adventists keep kosher or are vegetarian or vegan, Dr. Kellogg. They do not recognize homosexual unions. They discourage premarital sex and oppose abortion. They do not generally ordain women, although their doctrine is largely informed by the revelations of the prophet, Sister Ellen White. Mm. So that's a bit odd. Let's talk a little bit about Sister Ellen White. I mean that they don't ordain women Mm -hmm. since their primary, like most of their doctrine comes from Sister Ellen. Uh, Sister White's parents, Sister Ellen White's parents, were had joined the Millerites when she was only 12. She began having visions after the Millerites' great disappointment. Uh, and <laughs> that what was that spring yeah. or October? Uh, I think October <laughs> is probably the great one. Okay. The spring one, because he managed to get them to go all the way to October. That was the, the little disappointment. <laughs> the minor disappointment. <laughs> great disappointment one, great disappointment two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the sequel. <laughs> Uh, so Ellen White, went on, Sister Ellen, went on to have as many as 200 visions uh, through 1863. In her first vision, she saw Adventists ascending into the new Jerusalem and heaven and entering after Christ's second coming. At the age of 17, she married James Springer White, who believed her visions were genuine. These visions then formed an important part of early Adventist theology— And one of the Adventists' 28 fundamental beliefs is that the Holy Spirit can bestow the gift of prophecy and did so with Sister Ellen White. So she is in the core doctrine of Mm. Adventism. She's not just one of the people. She's like a saint. She pretty much, yeah, but like a super saint. She's a saint. like Mary. Yeah, she's like Mary, yeah. Wow. Um, I'm sure there are inaccuracies in that comparison, but it's she's very the, the importance of Mary. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Many Adventists regard Ellen White's visions as second only to the Bible in authority. White opposed the use of drugs to treat diseases, advocated for vegetarianism, and told followers to drink six to eight glasses of water a day. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> 
This, of course, had a strong influence on Dr. Kellogg. Perhaps her most influential teaching surrounded what she called the great controversy between God and Satan. Satan, a fallen angel, had introduced a spirit of rebellion into humanity through Adam and Eve. During the end times, people must live perfectly to prove that fallen humans can keep God's law. Righteousness is not something the believer does, but comes from God through Christ. Uh, Adventists out there, if I said anything off, just let me know. But that's the basics. The Urantia book was the fifth epical revelation. Ready for this now? So we got the Adventists. We got, that's all the background. We have settled the background here. We got the Adventists. These guys came out of the Adventists. They made cereal. But then they also started channeling the Urantia book in Chicago. Fifth epical revelation. The first epical revelation happened 30,000 years ago and had been preserved by American Indians the longest, but eventually it faded away. The second was Adam's revelation uh, 38,000 years ago. The third was Melchizedek, a biblical king of Salem regarded for his righteousness. That was around 1920 BCE. Melchizedek is an interesting figure in the history of religion. The second book of Enoch describes how he was saved from Noah's flood without boarding the ark uh, when he was spirited to the Garden of Eden and sort of kept there. The Dead Sea Scrolls use the word Melchizedek to mean the archangel Michael. Martin Luther regarded Melchizedek as an archetype of Christ, and Joseph Smith named the Mormon priesthood after Melchizedek and Aaron. The fourth epical revelation came through Jesus Christ, who was actually an incarnation of the creator god Michael, and the last came uh, the revelation through Wilfred Custer Kellogg. However, that's, that's a lineup right there. That is a lineup, yeah. <laughs> we got Adam and we got Jesus, Jesus and Wilfred Custer Kellogg. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to say that the Forum, capital F Forum, kept Wilfred Custer's name secret to prevent him from becoming idolized or deified. So uh, it's our scholar here, Gardner, who's, who's assuming that Wilfred Custer is the channeler and makes that case. And many people today believe that Cust- Wilf- Wilfred-, Wilfred Custer was the channeler. Oh, but, but we don't know that for a fact. They never oh, said okay, so, yeah. When the Eternal Son bestows a Creator Son upon a projected local universe, that Creator Son assumes full responsibility for the completion, control, and composure of that new universe, including the solemn oath to the Eternal Trinity not to assume full sovereignty of the new creation until his seven creature bestowals shall have been successfully completed and certified by the Ancient of Days of the Super Universe of Jurisdiction. The purpose of these creature incarnations is to enable such creators to become wise, sympathetic, just, and understanding sovereigns. So what the Urantia book is saying there is that the God, the creator God of each universe, manifests on Earth in a variety of incarnations, Hmm. takes physical form. It seems like a lot for someone with just a sixth grade education. Right? Sixth grade formal education. So, yeah, we'll assume that Wilfred Custer was doing reading on the side. The date when Sadler became aware of Wilfred Custer Kellogg's channeling is not entirely clear, but uh, Gardner believes it happened in 1912, although there's a small possibility it may have been 1906 or even 1907. 
Wilfred Custer never remembered anything that he said while channeling, not even under hypnosis. For about a decade, Dr. Sadler communicated with the channeled entities while his adopted daughter, Christy, took notes. The only people allowed in the room with the channeler were the contact commission, which is to say Sadler, his wife, his son, Wilfred, and his wife, uh, and Christy. So that's the only group who could be in the room while he was doing the channeling. They were called the Contact Commission. In 1923, he began to hold Sunday gatherings to discuss the revelations coming through the channeler. The group of 20 to 30 people who came to be called the Forum developed a collection of 4,000 questions to put to the channeled entities. So this is how it happened. Custer starts channeling. Sadler's like, ooh, cool, let's tell our friends. The friends come, they don't tell the friends who's doing the channeling, but they do say, you know, there's this channeled, you know, angelic entity talking to us. Do you guys want to ask him anything? <laughs> and they come back with 4,000 questions? <laughs> yeah. over time, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, over time. So, <clears throat> for a few weeks after they came up with their 4,000 questions, nothing happened. Then, in a single night, the channeler produced 472 pages of answers to these inquiries, oh which he wrote out himself. Oh. Yeah, right? The forum reviewed the pages and at the instructions of the channeled entity submitted new questions based on their new understanding so that the entity could re revise the manuscript accordingly. It's kind of a brilliant process, in my opinion. So you ask questions like somebody's like, hey, I'm talking to God. Uh, what do you want to know? And we're like, well, that's a lot of pressure for me, but what if we get all the alchemical actors together and we come up with questions for God? <laughs> and then they bring the questions back to God and God answers the questions. And then we read what God said and we're like, wait a second, I have more questions. So it sort of goes, this is how the Urantia book develops. Okay. I, th I think it's neat. Mm -hmm. A ritual developed in which Sadler or his son, Bill Jr., read a paper aloud to the forum. The forum then responded with questions. Bill Jr. organized the questions. The questions were then prevented to the midwayers. The midwayers existed halfway between the material and spiritual realms and passed messages between them. So the questions are not really being asked to the channel, or they're being asked to the angels, the entities, the supernatural beings. Most of the inhabited worlds of Nebadon harbor one or more groups of unique beings existing on the life-functioning level about midway between those of the mortal of the realms and of the angelic orders. Hence, they are called midway creatures. This process continued through 1949. In 1982, Christie, the last surviving member of the Contact Commission, had all of the original documents relating to the Urantia book destroyed leaving only the final copy of the book for oh, analysis. Interesting. So, like historians like me, I can't go back and read the primary sources. They're, they've been destroyed. All that's left is this. This is the primary source. Did she say why? Um, I think it's a matter of preserving the identity of the channeler, but mm. also of allowing the final revelation to be the whole of the book. Of the, to be final uh, yeah if we have these others then we can go back and ask questions and stuff start gotcha. picking it apart a little bit it's kind of the problem with the gospels there's four of them and they contradict each other so i got gotcha. you when i pick on different parts of christianity i'm often comparing gospels you can't do that if you only have one urantia book which has its own internal incoherent in inconsistencies but we'll get there 
Speaking of the final copy of the Arantia book, uh, let's talk about the book and the details of the Arantia theology, shall we? You ready for this? Yeah. We know how we got it. What's in it? Religion is essentially faith, trust, and love of God. Our religious traditions are imperfectly received records of the experiences of men who've known God in ages gone by. We'll see an example of this when we go through the stories of the fall of Lucifer in Genesis, for example. Uh, for example. Although there is a plurality of godlike entities in the universe, monotheism is the most accurate religious perspective given the unity of the universal father. I, I, this is common, like uh, voodoo and even Hinduism to some extent. There's a pantheon of gods, but there's a core central god. Even, you know, Greek pantheism, theoretically, mm -hmm. we can think in these terms. God is transcendent reality, and creation exists for God to love, and for creation to love God in return. God does not compel the free wills of any material creatures so that this love comes freely. We got to love God on our own terms. Fair enough. God, the universal father, is the creator of paradise and the central universe of perfection. But the other universes are created by a core of creator sons. Son as in child. Our universe has been created by the son Michael, who is also responsible for incarnating as Jesus of Nazareth, in addition to six other incarnations. So Ooh. each each world has its own Jesus. Each yes, well, each universe has its own Michael, and each Michael incarnates in a kind of Jesus form. Yeah. Okay. But there are six more Jesuses. See what I mean? Jesus is just one of Michael's incarnations in this universe. Oh, so he's like multiple people on Earth yes. with us. Okay. Each mortal being contains a fragment of God. Our goal is to merge our material personality with our eternal spirit to manifest a mortal soul. Our immortality, as in Adventism, is conditional on our coming to know and love God enough for this transmutation to occur. The merging of personality and spirit is the free will choice to go on the eternal adventure, incarnating in distant worlds and distant universes on our way to God's central universe around which, around which these others revolve. So we're trying to be spiritualize ourselves. It's very common, uh, you know, hermetic principle and Gnostic, all these different traditions and occultism talk about this theosophical tradition. There is a spirit gravity that's perpetually pulling us toward God's heaven. The God of universal love unfailingly manifests himself to every one of his creatures, up to the fullness of that creature's capacity to spiritually grasp the qualities of divine truth, beauty, and goodness. God has an associate creator in the eternal Son. The Son is God the Father personally manifested in the universes. The eternal Son is a kind of mother God paired with the universal Father. The, universe, the eternal son is not to be confused with the creator sons. These are emanations of both the universal father and the eternal son whose unique personal thoughts manifest as these other sons, these lower sons. But they're all this same person. I would like to see a family tree is so I like can keep track of all of this. <laughs> so God that the father is at the top, creates eternal son, God the Father doesn't do much. It's very like, you know, Gnostic, Hermetic. He just sort of like hangs out. It's his son, the eternal son, who then does the manifesting. And then come the little sons who each form their own universes. It's like the Trinity on steroids. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So the, the, the son creates 
a bunch of other, of suns for himself, and then yes. the suns go out and make the worlds. Various universes. Okay. Yeah. Not just worlds, universes, universes. too. Universes. Yeah. We're, our, our creator is the creator of our universe, not a, just of Earth. Gotcha. The final aspect of the Trinity is the infinite spirit, which comprises the actions of the Father and the Son. Together, these three govern, rule, and form the seven super-universes. Sounds a little bit like Anna Kingsford, too. A vast hierarchy of angelic beings descends from there. There are the supreme trinity personalities, including the trinitized secrets of supremacy, eternal of days, ancient of days, perfections of days, recents of days, unions of days, and faithfuls of days. Then there's the coordinate trinity origin beings, with the trinity teacher sons, perfectors of wisdom, divine counselors, universal censors, inspired trinity spirits, Havona natives, and paradise citizens. The paradise sons of God include the descending sons of God, ascending sons of God, and trinitized sons of God. The higher personalities of the infinite spirit, uh, being with the solitary messengers, uh, then the universal uh, circuit supervisors, census directors, personal aides of the infinite spirit, associate inspectors, assigned sentinels, and graduate guides. We're really only just getting started with the supernatural entities detailed in this book. I've already zoned out. <laughs> <laughs> I do enjoy well, associated specter. <laughs> That is, that's, that, I like that one a lot. Jeff, so that's your goal, yeah. is to become an associated, I'm an associate inspector. Associate inspector. <laughs> There's all these angels and divine entities and natives of heaven, and John's like, hello, I'm the associate inspector. I just picture you in your Craig costume, like, hi there, yeah, with your headlamp. <laughs> we've left Havona, uh, I, We've, we've hardly left Havona enlisting all these entities, and Havona is, again, the center point of all the universes. They revolve around heaven. And there's still seven super-universes full of superhuman entities to categorize. So the book is a bit tiresome, as Savannah is saying, in this way, <laughs> that it has all this extremely bureaucratic, complex hierarchy of ang- angels and entities. It's Sounds like, like it, the beginning of the Old Testament. It's it's like Kabbalah on steroids. Everything's on steroids in the Arantia books. Like Kabbalah on steroids. It's just everything. Humanity, uh, now getting to things that we may not zone out on. Humanity did not begin with Adam and Eve, as Genesis tells us, but a pair of twins, Adon and Fanta. The twins were different from the other members of their tribe in that they had indwelling thought adjusters and were uninterested in mating with their primate cousins. They escaped the tribe in the night and fled north, where two years later they gave birth to their first of 19 children, Sontad. <laughs> They're like, no, I don't want to sleep with my cousin. I want to sleep with my a sibling. Twin, yeah. My... <laughs> you gross monkey sex people. They set up their family in a series of caves uh, and lived to see the birth of grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They discovered how to make fire rather than relying on a lightning strike and lived for f- uh, until and lived until 42 when they died in an earthquake. They didn't worship any idols, although Adon was tempted to worship the fire he'd created, but they also didn't have anything like a full sense of Urantian religion. 10,000 years later, on the northern shores of the Mediterranean, Onagar introduced the worship of the breath giver to men and animals with a prayer beginning, O breath of life, give us this day our daily bread. So the Lord's Prayer, in part, attributed to this guy, Onagar, of the Mediterranean people. 
Between the birth of the human race and the arrival of Adam and Eve, who also, by the way, existed and came to Earth from another universe, separate people, Adam and Eve, remember, <laughs> was the rebellion of Lucifer, Satan, and Caligastia. Ooh. Yes. I like that name. There's one more. Oh, <laughs> you now we have a trinity of evil, right? Lucifer was the system sovereign of Satania, which is located in our universe. Uh, our universe, by the way, is the universe of Nebadon, as you recall, uh, which is within the super universe of Orvanton. Yeah. <laughs> One of seven. Yes, correct. John is following along pretty well. Savannah's like fighting, but John has got all this right on the top of his head. What is it? What did they say there? Like, you need to be able, you need to have your soul good enough to for God to reach out to you. Yes, you need to fully understand God's bureaucracy so that he will reach out to you. So John's got it. John's good. He's I'm going to be that inspector. I, I was talking <laughs> I'm about, get there. You're I getting was there. telling God he needed to mind his business at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> yeah. So now I'm yeah, like. Yeah, you've got to start at square one again. <laughs> you, should, you, won't, you won't make associate inspector any time this millennia. Dang it. <laughs> um, <laughs> John will be inspecting you. So. Orvantan is our super universe. Nebadon is our actual universe. And then Satania is located within our universe. And in charge of Satania is Lucifer. So, so does that mean that like in all the other universes, there isn't a Lucifer and There's there isn't a Satania? Different kinds of Lucifers, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is there like a super Lucifer who has like sun Lucifers and each universe has... Okay. <laughs> no, no. Each <laughs> universe it, just has not? their own. Why not? <laughs> so theoretically, there's some universes with no Lucifers. So no evil you guys, let me get, let me keep going, and we'll see if I can answer this. <laughs> Lucifer was full of the will to self-assertion and declared liberty from the Universal Father. He said that the Universal Father, the One God at the center of all things, didn't exist, and that the system should be autonomous. Michael, the Universal Creator, offered salvation to the rebels. Some accepted, but none of the leaders of the rebellion did. So uh, Lucifer's like, God doesn't exist. We're on our own. And we're a bunch off of from people were like, yeah. Yeah. And, and then, then Michael comes in and he's like, wait, you guys, God does exist. If you plead, if you take a yeah. plea deal off, I'll, you yeah. could happen. Yeah. And, and some of the people were like, oh, yeah. oh all right. Okay. We're going to go with Michael. He seems, he's always been cool to us. And then the rest of them were like, no, no God. We're with Lucifer. So uh, at the time of the rebellion, our world, Earth, was under the command of the planetary prince Caligastia. Uh, the entity, by the way, who would come to be regarded as our devil. Our devil is not Lucifer. It's not Satan, because those are, you know, cosmic beings in super universes. It's Caligastia. Well, Caligastia... Well, what's different about him? I'm conf Hold on. He's assigned to our planet. Oh, our planet specifically. Yeah, But yeah, yeah. they are out just in our universe. Lucifer was assigned to a different planet and started this whole rebellion among all these angelic beings. See well, what I'm what saying? Well, what planet's he on? I'm He's on Satania. Oh, well, I don't know that one. <laughs> was that still in our universe? You haven't been there? You no. don't know what I'm talking about? <laughs> well, I'm just thinking, like, was he on Neptune or no, something? No, he's on Satania. Saturn. Yeah, lovely sunsets there. But all, um, all of them are still in our universe. Yes, they're in Nebadon. Okay. In Orvantan. John is we're so definitely going to make an associate inspector. <laughs> Lucifer and Satan are all, and Caligasti, are all in all in our universe. Okay. But Caligasti is the only one who's actually related to our planet. And okay. is with us right now on our planet. I'll get there. In this room. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Look under your chair. Yeah, he's um, me. <laughs> so I'm him. At the, at the time of the rebellion, uh, okay, so Caligastia was in charge. 
Uh, while Kalagastya was still serving the Universal Father, Father Kalagastya's job was to ensure the gradual spiritual evolution uh, and elevation of our planet. His headquarters were located near the Persian Gulf, where he was served by a council of 100 superhuman beings. Each of the ten planetary commissions set about slowly and naturally to advance the interests entrusted to them. Their plan consisted in attracting the best minds of the surrounding tribes and, after training them, sending them back to their people as emissaries of social uplift. So that's basically how it worked. We'd send some good people, the best, your best people, to Caligastia. He would train them with his angel crew, and then you would go back to your tribe and teach them your their, your spiritual ways. It's like missionaries. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of delegating in this system. You think? I, I named like a thousand different grades of angel. It's a lot of middle management. Yeah. Like Lucifer, Caligastia was ultra individualistic, and so when Lucifer rebelled, Urantia's planetary prince was quick to join him. By the way, this is Urantia. This is not Earth. Well, that's what they call it. They call it Urantia, yeah. Um, his assistant, Dalagastia. <laughs> Easy now. <laughs> declared Caligastia to be the god of Urantia, and a great tribulation ensued. Caligastia's 100 divided into two groups, the rebels, which he led, and the loyalists, led by one of his counselors, Van, who was aided by Armadon. I thought it would be aided by Dan. <laughs> yeah, it should be, right? <laughs> Van and Dan. Does Armadon, that sounds similar to Armageddon? Armadon, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. The power, I mean... Uh, Does it have any... Uh, coincidence, right? The powers that be waited until the last of the entities on Urantia had decided for or against Lucifer's uh, cause. So in heaven, like all these administrators, clearly (laughs) because there's billions of them, like they're going to know that shit's going down on Earth. Somebody in middle management is slowly working his message, like they're typing reports and sending memos to each other, and the memos are going to other offices, and people are visiting each other's offices, and everyone's buzzing about this. (laughs) And and somebody along the chain is like, wait. Stop the memos. What we need to do is let these guys pick sides. Because we can't decide what to do with them until everyone has chosen. The fence sitters, we don't know how to handle. But we know how to handle you if you've rebelled and how to handle you if you've chosen Van. Um, So, after everyone had picked for or against Lucifer. So, Caligastia says, I'm with Lucifer. And then all his team divides. And then the entire universe is dividing between Lucifer and anti-Lucifer. They then deprived the rebels, so up in the high offices in heaven, the the memos go around, and the conclusion (laughs) is they will deprive the rebels of the sustenance of the system life circuits, which renders all the angels mortal. In response, Dalagastia ordered them to begin having sex to reproduce their numbers against their enemy. So they made them all mortal, and I guess they could start murdering them. So Dalagastia is like, let's start banging. (laughs) That'll get him. Uh, this was, by the way, the origin of the tales of the Nephilim. The rebels or fallen angels had sex with the people of Earth. Interesting. Yeah. Remember that conversation about demons. After Caligastia was defeated, Van remained on Urantia until the time of Adam to serve as the ruler of all superhuman personalities. Now Adam and Eve. They'd been working uh, in the testing laboratories in Jerusalem. Let me say that again. Adam and Eve 
not just, you know, two naked people pop down into a garden and are like, whoa, how did I get here? They were scientists working in the testing laboratories in a place called Jerusalem, which is not on Earth. This is a separate planet. Uh, when they volunteered for what was called the Adamic Adventure on Urantia. So it's like a sci- it is very science fiction-y. You know, it's sort of like, you know, the, the memo comes down from the high office and it says we must, uh, you must recruit X number of people to go on the Adamic Adventure on Urantia. We're going to colonize Urantia. Where's HBO? Right? <laughs> I think they can't get past that list of administrators. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came to rule, but their task was onerous. Urantia had been polluted by interbreeding between species and spiritually unsettled by Caligastia's rebellion. To make matters worse, although Caligastia had been defeated, he remained a planetary prince in name and would continue in that role until the creator god Michael incarnated as Jesus. What Wait, if- so they didn't kill him? I guess he got, well, they, I mean, they couldn't, I, I, there's a lot of angels out there, but yeah, I guess they couldn't find him. But he was like, he was still ruling from his yeah, like little Maine. cave where he was hiding? I mean, Van is in charge now, oh. not Dan, Van, but Caligasti is still out there. It's that angel devil scenario is mm. plaguing the earth. He never like officially got his title revoked. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that, that he never handed it his badge. <laughs> <laughs> There's still, it's got lost somewhere in the okay, one of those. Got lost on the fifteenth floor. Um, so, one of his lieutenants, Sarah pa- Sarah Patasia, Vans or Caligastias? Caligastias. Okay. Uh, pa- pa- Sarah Patasia. Sarah Patasia, which sounds a little bit like serpent, suggested that they gift the lower races with a superior leader by having one of the higher races mate with one of the lower races. So, Eve had sex with Kano, a superior specimen of the lower races, and Adam, in solidarity with Lee, with Eve, had sex with Leota, a similarly superior but lower race woman. So this is the eating of the apple. The eating of the apple is, in fact, the banging of the lower races. Mm. The sexing of the lower races. Because they're spiritually higher. They came from, you know, Jerusalem, another planet. They're, like, way advanced. And they're like, okay, we'll have sex with these sexy cave people. But only because you told us to, Seripatashia. This whole uh, situation had been orchestrated in part by Caligastia, although it was freely willed. It was a freely willed error on both Adam and Eve's part. This, however, was not the beginning of anything like original sin. Caligasta rebelled. Adam and Eve did default. But no mortal subsequently born on Uranta has suffered in his personal spiritual experience because of these blunders. No person is ever made to suffer vital spiritual deprivation because of the sin of another. So they don't believe in original sin. Okay. So I'm, that's cool. Yeah. The last quarter of the Arantia book concerns a reinterpretation of the gospel. So let's move on now from the creation story. I think you guys have you got that <laughs> down, right, John? Yes. You feel good because you will be quizzed on this for the associate inspector job. I'm going to be sick that day. <laughs> You're calling out. <laughs> The last quarter of the Arantia book, uh, as I said, is a reinterpretation of the Gospels. Through the lens of Jesus of Nazareth being the incarnation of Michael, the creator god of Nebadon. The book denies the virgin birth, saying Jesus was born of ordinary parents in August, in the year 7 uh, BCE, by the way, which actually kind of jives with historians' general perspective. Hmm. 
Joseph uh, died, leaving Jesus the head of his household, and a merchant's daughter named Rebecca proposed marriage, but Jesus turned her down on account of his mission. It's not that he didn't want to marry her. He just had stuff to do. (laughs) In addition to paying the bills uh, with carpentry, young Jesus studied Greek, math, science, art, and philosophy. He had a sister, Ruth, Ruther, uh, and a business manager named David. He also revolutionized boat building. But uh, the miracle of loaves and fishes was actually just Jesus showing us how good he was at fishing. He did not cast demons into pigs, but he did cure a man's epilepsy around the same time. A dog chased some pigs off of a cliff. Pure coincidence. Uh, Rather than violate the laws of nature, Jesus drew on the higher powers to abrogate time, uh, which I think means stop time. So at the wedding of Cana, they made wine and switched it out with the water rather than transform anything. He just froze time. Yeah. I mean, that's still pretty impressive. It was pretty cool, yeah. Nevertheless. But, but is it? Almost cooler. Yeah. yeah. And he stuck some of their fingers <laughs> up their noses and stuff. So it was, yeah. it was, we all had a good laugh. But, it's like a Marvel scene with like with the guy who runs really fast. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> yes. He's, yeah, he's like the Flash. Um, but didn't you say that the God of our world is Jesus? No, the God of our universe yes, is Jesus. Yes, Michael is Jesus. So he incarnates on earth and he doesn't perform a whole lot of miracles. He doesn't want to violate the laws of nature by performing miracles. So all he can do is... So is Jesus like his own guy, but like Michael's hanging out in his head? Or like Michael is him? Michael is Jesus. It's kind of like the so relationship he's... between God and Jesus in the Bible, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you can think about they're it They're the same way. person, but they're different entities. Yeah. Oh, okay. He's an incarnation. It might even be more like Vishnu and his incarnations. It, does uh, Michael exist at the same time as Jesus? I'd see that. I don't know. I'll see if it comes up in this conversation, because if that's the case, then it is very Vishnu-y. But it's also, I guess, very Christy. Anyway, he can stop time or he can rather slow time. So he doesn't really stop time. He can just like move past time. Okay. Maybe he is like the flash. That's pretty cool. Jesus did not, by the way, rise bodily from the grave. Rather, his moroncha body emerged. That is to say a body halfway between matter and spirit, sort of like his astral spirit. After the resurrection, Jesus emerged from his burial tomb, the body of flesh in which he had lived and wrought on earth for almost 36 years was still lying there in its sepulchre niche, undisturbed and wrapped in the linen sheet. Neither was the stone before the entrance of the tomb in any way disturbed. The seal of Pilate was still unbroken. The soldiers were still on guard. None of these watchers suspected that the object of their vigil had risen to a new and higher form of existence. So he escaped astrally mm. from the tomb. So, what can we take from the Arantia book after all is said and done? Since the original documents were destroyed, it's impossible to say how much of the book is the work of editors and how much came from the original channeler. Channeling was nothing new, as we've said. Andrew Jackson Davis gave Americans the divine mysteries of nature in the 1840s, and a series of talented mediums succeeded him with sometimes startling texts. Edgar Casey, the sleeping prophet, brought the practice into the 20th century, and it was a hallmark of the New Age up to the present day. The book clearly has human hands on it, including perhaps Wilfred Custer's subconscious and Sadler's conscious incorporation of Seventh-day Adventist doctrine into Urantian theology. There's some plagiarism in the book as well, and the science concerning cosmic and quantum bodies in space is dated uh, to the period 
that the book was written. So there's a lot of this, it's science fiction-y, and there's a lot of science, but the science is out of date. While there are inconsistencies in the text, the more remarkable thing is that it's at all consistent, given that it is a detailed 2,000-page text outlining the Byzantine structures of a divine hierarchy more complex than any supernatural system of angels, devils, or spirits I've ever come across. And bear in mind, friends, how many hours of this podcast exist. (laughs) I have never seen anything like what I described to you all today. There's also the curious recurrence of prime numbers in the text and numerological games around the numbers 3, 7, and 10. For a book that was channeled at least initially overnight, it is an incredible work reflecting the true genius of subconscious revelation. So ultimately, my take on the Urantia book is that it is quite weird, um, and it does give us a chuckle or two, uh, but it is, nevertheless is a remarkable emanation of the subconscious, no matter how we want to deal with it. Whether we want to believe it or not is another thing. It's got all these unusual stories to it. But um, my goodness, to come up with all that off the top of your head yeah. and keep track of it. I mean, all those levels of angels and things. Anyway, final thoughts. I really liked the idea of... Um how the god of the universe has to live as a human so that they don't become an asshole because they're like oh i know what it's like to be a human or a lower being or whatever i thought that i like that ideology rings true for you should happen yeah ideal world you know yeah what are the absolute power corrupts absolutely or whatever you didn't like like undercover boss what yeah yeah it's undercover boss Undercover guess, God. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I guess it has that quality to it. Uh, but you, you didn't like all the angels and stuff. I mean, I don't mind the hierarchy. I mean, I guess, like, it makes sense. It almost kind of reminds me of The Good Place because there is a scene in The Good Place where they're, like, walking around an office and people are just typing stuff. And it's like, what are you doing? They're just working. Yeah, but imagine there just being tons more levels to that office. It's in this giant high rise in heaven. You know, it's pretty weird to think about, but like, I don't know how else, you know, a religion would work. <laughs> how else are we going to keep this universe yeah, together? If I not mean, with all seven thousands of, of angels, all seven, of seven it's universes. Hard to keep some things moving here. Like, I'm just thinking, like, some of our theater projects and stuff. It's right. hard enough controlling thirty people, let alone a billion, jillion angels. We had a hundred thousand angels. Yeah, I mean, you have to bear that in mind. There's not only a hundred thousand angels in heaven controlling the central system, but there's then all these angels in every universe, and then all those angels have other u- angels because <laughs> the super Local universes governments. have their angels, and then under that, there's the under angels of the major universes, and then under that, the worlds themselves have angels who have their own staffs. Yeah. Because the guy who was in charge of uh, Urantia had like a hundred superhumans working for him. Right. Just him. Yeah. Just on Earth. Where did he get the superhumans from? You know. Uh, uh, angels having sex with people, I think. Uh, I don't know. They're, like a, they're probably, they're probably a lower rung of angel. Mm. Yeah, or, the, or they the could come from other planets. Oh, okay. Do you okay. like the sci-fi-ness of it, Savannah? I That's do, kind actually. of up your alley, right? It's a little weird. It's goofy. The planets and the planetary but travel. But when you were saying it, it reminded me of Star Wars only slightly because you were like, oh, they were on this planet and they were on this planet. It's kind of like in Star Wars, they're like, oh, we were on Coruscant. But it's like Coruscant's a whole planet. Where were you on that planet? <laughs> but, <laughs> <You're right. laughs> so, <laughs> it's like saying, oh, I was on Earth yesterday. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But okay. it's like, where Come on Earth? Come find me. I'm on Earth. Yeah, but on, in Star Wars, 
afterwards they're just like nope i was just on that planet and they were like yeah cool <laughs> i know exactly <laughs> what you what mean you were saying reminded me of that <laughs> also are we the only universe that had a rebellion i don't think so i, I think that's too much to say with seven super universes and universes within those super universes, it's definitely happening in other places. Because Lucifer yeah. was the main rebellion. Lucifer, who had his own planet here in this universe, yeah, okay. and then encouraged others to join him, yeah. Was his planet above or below ours? <laughs> I don't know if there's a hierarchy of planets per se in the universe. Yeah. So, like the universes are higher than one another. Yeah. Well, no, I think they're, oh, all, e- they're equal, all equal, but they have a hierarchy running each one. So Lucifer and Caligastia were on the same level. I think in a manner of speaking, I mean, Lucifer took a position of authority in being the initial rebel, but yeah. So where do we fit in all this? Not me in particular. Humans, yes. How do we become higher humans if there aren't higher planets to go to? By having sex with angels. (laughs) That's how our children work their way up. Um, Yeah, We just need to be good and commit ourselves to spiritual development and we will not be born on Earth again. We'll be born on another planet. But we can never but go why? back. We can't go back, no. Okay. There's only oh. one way. Yeah. So as John worked his way to associate inspector, he's never coming back to Earth. <laughs> Keep taking the test. Pass oh. once you're good. Keep failing. Don't worry about it. Yeah, so if yeah. you, so if you're bad, you just cease to exist. If Correct. you're bad, you cease to exist. If you're good, you get to go live on a different planet. You reincarnate on another planet. Yeah. Okay. And there's so many planets that yeah, like, you, you could yeah. never see them all. Right. I like that about it. It has that Hindu quality of making yeah. you feel the smallness of yourself and the vastness of the cosmos. Yeah. It's humbling. And in a way, I find that spiritually uplifting because we think that we know it all here. You know, Neil deGrasse oh, Tyson yeah. running his mouth about how the universe is this, that, and the other. Well, that's cute. But how the hell do you know? There's so much more that we don't know than mm-hmm. that we know. Um, God love Neil deGrasse Tyson, I guess. But you see what I mean? Like, yeah. it's that arrogance of physics and that arrogance of science is humbled when you think about the possibility. Like, how would we know if there are super universes? We wouldn't. Yeah. What's outside the boundaries of the universe? To so these guys, it's heaven. And then, but heaven is the central spoke, which means there are universes on both sides of us and maybe even below us on all sides. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Final thoughts, John? It sounds kind of compelling. As a yeah, I, I felt that I was converting you here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an interesting thought exercise to try to try to wrap your head around what yeah. that would look like. The all the angels or the the universes or yeah, just like the the bureaucracy of it, like you said before. Yeah, it's so it's so different than anything I've thought of as far as like religion or belief systems are concerned. Where there's mm-hmm. like ten gods and they're all in part of just this world and they're all it's just ten. I think they're the same level. It would make a good movie. I agree. Like a maybe Kubrick a, kind of movie. Maybe a TV series. There's a lot of information to fit into. <laughs> you want, yeah, like a Lord, it's like a Lord of the Rings nine hour. Well, that, it, I was kind of thinking that. I'm like, Tolkien put so much effort in all of his like lore and stuff. Like they did the same exact thing with yeah. their book. Like, this is no less. Yeah, this is exact. I would compare it to Lord of the Rings. Yeah. yeah. It's got that level of detail consistency fine there are some things that aren't quite right but you know Tolkien also is a product of his time right so mm-hmm. I want the Caligastia backstory movie yeah <laughs> he sounds cool I like his name could do a whole Marvel situation around this but yeah I, I think a nine hour epic kind of Peter Jackson event is what we're looking for for the so, Arantia book oh also do people actually like follow this like or is this just like yeah. a fun okay that people actually believe in there this. are believers in the Arantia book you can 
yeah, it, it's out there. You can Google this and find there's a website devoted to the Orange Book. Do they have churches and stuff? I think it's more of a Bible, like it's a Bible study kind of thing. So on that note, are Seventh-day Adventists still associated with it? They never were officially. Mm-hmm. So the Urantia group, the forum, grew out of Seventh-day Adventism insofar as Sadler and Kellogg were Seventh-day Adventists. But so when you, you read You said the, they worked part of Seventh-day Adventist doctrine into the... Yes, you can't understand... Potentially. I mean, it's... Yes, you can see Seventh-day Adventism in the Urantia book and, you know, its various principles about resurrection and stuff um and the fall and all these kinds of things um so that you can gloss seventh-day adventism over the urantia book however seventh-day adventism would not be like yes that is a revelation of seventh-day adventism Mm. it's a separate thing it's an offshoot of seventh-day adventism yeah it's kind of delightful in how humble the urantia book is insofar as it doesn't become this Mormonism or anything. Yeah. They have this holy book that is the truth to those who choose to believe in it, but there's not this uh, effort to, when you can't whack you over the head with it, because then you'd die, because it's enormous. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like you, it, it, it will speak its truth for itself. You know, it's sort of like the the Gideons when they pass out the Bibles in front of the school and stuff. And I know they get on the theater kids nerves, but the principle is kind of beautiful that you receive the book, you read the book and the book converts you or it doesn't. Now, that's the feeling of the Urantia book, you know, that you will find it compelling on on its own, that we don't really really need to do much for it. This is just if you're a believer, this is how it is. So take it or leave it. But this is the truth. It definitely is compelling. I just, I zoned out when you were just spitting out names really, really Well, quickly, I said it so. in a particular okay. way for that purpose, <laughs> yeah. I, I gave the certain inflection to the uh, Byzantine hierarchy of the angels. I'm, it, I'm... it just sounded like the Book of Numbers. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, I mean, but that's how, I, it took, you know how long it took me to hunt and peck through the Urantia book to even collect that, those names? And that's not even a complete list of all the different offices. You didn't read all 2,000, did you? All 2,000 All 2,000, pages? no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> The cliff I, notes are still like a thousand pages. Yeah, yeah the cliff, because yeah, there are chummery, summary chapters. I read chapters and picked in, yeah, but I, I was able to get the thrust of the book and then I read, I read a lot of the beginning actually to just get the feel of what it's like to read the Orange book. It's, it really is an experience. And um, I guess if you're up for a spiritual challenge, have at the Orange book, critically, rationally, be a good occult confessor. Let's bring it on home, friends. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of alchemical actors until such a time as we get together and do it again. My name is Dr. Robert C. Thompson. I am your supreme hierophant of the secret order of alchemical actors. Joined this day by Johnny Cook, patron progenitor. Oh, uh, bye. Oh, oh, bye. And Savannah Verrett our sister of the 84th degree goodbye we want to thank Andrew Mims who provided our voice of your ranch uh, we also want to ask you to join us next time uh, when we will continue uh, and conclude actually with our final episode uh, on uh, this topic of Christian occultism and that is with Charles Ledbetter for those of you who want still more Christian occultism uh, we'll be beginning with occultists by request our next season so you know, hang in till there, here on Occult Confessions. Bye.
Yes. You ever heard of the bird eaters? No. The Goliath bird eaters? That's a type of spider? Yeah, it's a type of tarantula. They oh. grow to be like the size of a dinner plate. And they're a called what? bird eaters because they're actually big enough to eat birds. How That's big is the crazy. aquarium for a dinner plate sized spider? Probably the size of a full aquarium. What is a full aquarium? <laughs> um, I don't like know. A... Probably like a like a forty gallon. Hot damn. God Probably. Damn. Right now I just there's a like a specialized tarantula enclosure website I buy from. Hmm. And my biggest one is gonna go into like an eight by eight by twelve. The rest of them go into like. Do you keep them separate? Yeah, they kill each other. Yeah. There's actually, there's actually, it's kind of cool. There's a species that is communal. Oh. Which is the only species that's like really communal, and it's really, they're on, they were, they're on this specific island. So I guess they evolved to be communal, (laughs) because no other species is like that. That's actually. At least mainly, yeah. So you can have people have like ten or fifteen of them, and they're all. They're all together. together. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of cool. You need a hobby, Savannah, like this. No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I I can barely take care of myself. I don't need a pet. 